Well, today we're going to look at one word that the Apostle Paul uses. It's only used one time in Scripture. So that is very unique, and you'll see why it is so important, because it's about your spiritual walk and my spiritual walk. So there's one word that Paul uses, only time used throughout the entire Bible. And so we'll see that here in just a moment and take this to heart, what he has to say, and the reason he uses this word only one time. You know, consider Reed Hastings. I love this story here. He had an incident that happened back in 1999, and he shared himself, you know, I could be angry or I could be inspired. Now, you may not know his name, but you'll recognize who he is here in just a moment. But he had a decision to make when something went the wrong way, something was unfair, and he decided I could be a victim or I could do something about this and make a positive change. And we'll see what he decided to do in a moment. Mary Frances Berry, professor at the University of Pennsylvania, said it like this, the time when you need to do something is when no one else is willing to do it when people are saying it can't be done. As we talk on a regular basis, you know, there's always going to be people that say what can't be done, and we want to be the people that have faith and say, I believe all things are possible in Christ. You know, Peter Shea said, understand many people around you will not encourage you, and some will even discourage you from pursuing your dreams. But let us stand up in, in spite of opposition and say, I'm going to live the life that Christ has called me to live, and I'm going to follow after him even again if nobody else believes or there's naysayers or there's people that discourage. Consider Michael Dell who said, you don't have to be a genius or a visionary or even a college graduate to be successful. You just need a framework and a dream. Who is Michael Dell? the founder of Dell Computers, which are used you know, worldwide. He said, all you need is a dream. And when you have that dream, recognize there's going to be opposition to that. And spiritually, when you try to live your life fully in Christ, there's going to be opposition to that. But we're called to step forth in faith and walk in the promise that Jesus said we can walk in. You know, John Wesley Methodist Church founded upon his teachings, you know, tremendously influential person in church history. It said one day he was out preaching, preaching in an open field. Somebody threw a rock, hit him in the head. What did he do? He simply wiped off the blood, picked up his Bible, and he went on preaching. Again, that we say whatever the opposition is, it will not stop what we are, are called to do in our life. Now, Galatians 5, we know the words, but let them sink in what is said here, that the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love, joy, peace. And, and then it goes on to say, of course, there's patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But focus on that first three. Your life and my life is to be marked by what? Love, and joy and peace. Joy, a, a thing that cannot be taken away by circumstance. And a peace, a, a rest, no matter what waves are tossing us back and forth in life. Then, of course, love is the oxygen of the soul. But there's an opposition to living that love and joy and peace. Notice the opposite of what that looks like that Paul talks about. Second Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 10, he says is two words, they perish. Now, we're called to live in love and joy and peace, and that offers all who receive Christ. 
But those who reject that, Paul says, they perish. And notice what he goes on to say, why they perish. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Now, we know that truth is also a person. Christ is that truth. But truth is also that which is true eternally in all circumstances because God says that's the truth. Now, we live in a culture where people... You know, they don't believe in truth. They redefine truth. It doesn't matter what the world says. Those who reject Christ, reject the truth, well, they perish. And the truth is that our life has to be found in Christ, for he is that way, the truth, the life. But living in him, it is also true that we are called to have that love and joy and peace. And let's be honest, a lot of people do not have that. We're going to see why, if you're wrestling with it, there's a very good reason that that's happening, and I'll show you what you can do about that. You know, Russ Dizdar, a minister, shared that he quotes this statement by Oz Guinness, you know, probably a thousand times at this point. But listen to the quote from Oz Guinness. It says this, the Christian life is not just difficult, it is impossible. But it is exactly here the faith of the Christian begins. That is why only this uniquely impossible faith, with a resurrection that blasts apart the finality of death, is able to provide a new birth and a new life. You know, we've talked about this many times. It's impossible to, to live the Christian life on our own. That's why we have to depend on Christ to die to self. You know, less of me and more of him. But as Oz Guinness says, the reason that faith becomes possible in Christ is because of his resurrection that blasts apart the finality of death. When Jesus rose, he gives us not just overcoming life in the sense of no fear of death, but he also gives us life here and now that's to be marked again with that joy and peace. Let's go back to Reed Hastings. What happened in 1999, he went to return a, a video to a store. And this is not you know, some life-changing moment in other people's you know, framework, but it was something he saw as unfair. And, and so, yes, you know, there's much more difficult challenges others face. But here's a great example of somebody that just said, let's do something about things that are not fair, and should not be, and not just sit quietly. And what happened is Reed Hastings took a video back to a video store. They said, you have a late fee. And he said, okay, and how much is that late fee? And they said $40. Now, $40, that's, that's a lot of money to begin with, but as a late fee, that's what he tried to argue as well. They wouldn't listen. And so... Again, he said, I could be angry or I could get inspired. And what Reed Hastings did is he got inspired to say there has to be a, a way to be fair to people. You know, you can't charge a $40 late fee. Let's find a way that people could watch a movie and not have a late fee. Better yet, find a way they could watch a movie at home, stream it through their TV. And what Reed Hastings began to create now has made him a, a billionaire. He's worth $6 billion. Reed Hastings created Netflix. So again, get angry or get inspired. Become a victim 
or to say, let me change what is happening. Now, let's get to Paul's one word here in just a moment. But listen to Timothy ends and what he has to say about what happens, the counterfeits in life. Timothy Hens writes, Anything that is extremely valuable gets counterfeited. Fake gems have been around for thousands of years. Gem buyers are aware there are basically three types of gems that are counterfeits. Number one, synthetic gems. These are lab-grown stones, closely duplicate and natural gems, physical and chemical properties. Number two, simulated gems, also man-made, and the color of the stone may be similar to a natural one, but it's different chemically, such as cubic zirconia. And number three are enhanced gems. These are natural gems that are altered to improve their look. So color is enhanced by heat and radiation, oil and chemicals. Experts advise that you verify a stone's value with gem testing labs before you buy one. Be careful not to be fooled by a counterfeit. That's a, a great statement he makes in anything that's extremely valuable is counterfeited. Most valuable message, of course, the gospel. And so it's going to be counterfeited by the enemy with lies and false religions and temptations to sin. And so here is the one word now to stand up against the counterfeits, to not be a victim, to know what it is to live that life with the love, joy, peace, the one word found only one time in the Bible, it is in Paul's letter, and in the Greek, that word is pale, P-A-L-E. Now, pale is a reference to sports. Now, what kind of reference is it? Before I tell you that, let's listen to something here written by Rick Renner about what type of sports there were in that first century and why they do not parallel what we know as these terms today. So consider boxing. Boxing was considered the most feared combat sport. The reason was these boxers wore gloves that were ribbed with steel. Some had nails that they had taped to them. Made this incredibly dangerous. And on top of that, there were no rules in boxing. It didn't just end at the end of a round. It ended when somebody surrendered. So think about boxing today. We have gloves, a referee, a mouthpiece. There's rules. That's not boxing in that first century. Boxing in that first century was deadly. And few people lived to retire. Most of them would die in the ring. No rules, spiked gloves, just a, a brutal sport. Now, think about the next sport in that first century, wrestling, which was also deadly. And many would choose to die in the ring rather than have the dishonor of surrendering in defeat. So how did you force your opponent to surrender in wrestling? Nothing like today. What you would do is you would basically choke that person and you know they'd pass out. And here's what happened though to the loser of a wrestling match. They were then blinded. That was the punishment for losing. 
So boxing, this deadly sport, wrestling often deadly, but the loser would be blinded as a punishment for losing. Now step back and consider when Paul, and you read some of his letters where he talks about, you know, boxing as in being able to fight the devil and take some of those blows or wrestling. And consider now again, when you stop and think about, Paul says in one verse, one time, he uses the word pale. Well, what does pale mean in English? Well, it means both of these things. It means boxing or wrestling. It's the same word. It refers to both sports. So now you understand what pale is. It means boxing and wrestling in that first century contest. Very violent, deadly, intense. Well, here's the verse where Paul uses that word, Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We pale not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness, and high places. So when Paul talks about the, the spiritual battle that you're in, that I'm in in life, it's an intense struggle, an intense fight. It's pale. It's not simply sport. It is Paul saying we pale against the devil. Everybody in that first century would have known exactly what he was saying in that context. Let me read a couple other translations. Here's the amplified version. We are not wrestling with flesh and blood. The century English version says we are not fighting against humans, the New Living Translation, we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood. So Paul says, here's the spiritual reality. We're not wrestling with the devil like we might think of that term. We are pale with the devil. Where it is intense, it, it is violent, it is something that we have to stand up and struggle. And when we wrestle with the devil, we can see that Paul chose a word to use to describe this conflict with the unseen demonic powers set out to destroy your life and my life. Paul was telling everybody in that first century as well as today that spiritual warfare is a struggle. It's an intense conflict. What does that mean for you and I? Well, let's see the victory that we're guaranteed in Jesus. Remember, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And we want to say, I love the truth. I live the truth. Jesus is that truth. Well, here's a truth to take and recite and confess and pray and hold on to every day because here's the promise. Colossians 2.15, everything here that Jesus, we are told about him, again, is a parallel that is there in that first century for us to understand the explosive nature here of that one who burst forth to destroy death and hell and the grave and the power of the enemy. Colossians 2.15, it says, having 
disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Three words in that incredible verse, just real quick, disarmed, a public spectacle, and triumph. What is happening here in this statement? This is what Jesus did to the devil and the demons. First of all, he disarmed them. Everything here, think about a massive parade is the picture being drawn here of a conquering king on a horse with adoring crowd celebrating and a defeated enemy in front being marched through town to show the people that they have been defeated by that king. And the adoring crowds are the king's followers who celebrate that victory and say the enemy is no more. So when it says he disarmed them in that first century, losing armies would be stripped of their swords and shields, their bows and arrows, and they'd be marched through town without anything. So all the people could cheer and see defeated enemies, disarmed, a public spectacle was made of them. The entire town would come out and gather and cheer victory, victory, victory as that defeated army was marched before them with the king on the horse triumphant. Which is where it then says next that he triumphed over them by the cross. So imagine the parade, the celebration, the disarmed soldiers walking in front as the crowds cheered. The entire town's there and the king triumphant on his stallion marching as well. The procession ended when he would stop his steed and then climb upstairs and sit on his throne and all the people would know what. Peace. Peace because the enemy's defeated. What is our life to be? Love, joy, celebrating victory, and peace. The enemy defeated. So when we pale, wrestle, box with the devil, we don't do it as a victim. We do it from a place of victory. What does that mean for you and I? It means there needs to be a sense of that boldness in our prayers. When we read about, for instance, this week, that those gangs in Haiti kidnapped some local brothers and sisters in Christ, men, women, children, we pray bold prayers that those men and women be set free. We pray bold prayers that those gangs, that their eyes be opened, blindness be bound, and that the gospel light shine into their heart, that they would see the wickedness of their deeds and repent. Bold prayers are not like in this country where half the people just give up and walk away from marriages. Rather, bold prayers say, enemy, you are defeated, and I claim my family back, and I bind your evilness, and I cancel your work in my family's life, and I loose the blessings of God over this household in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a boldness that says if a stone is thrown and hits you in the face, you stand up and you preach even more boldly about Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. 
as Rick Renner says, Colossians 2.15 could be translated as such. He completely stripped principalities and powers, left them utterly naked. Nothing was left at their disposal to retaliate. He boldly, confidently, loudly, blatantly, and publicly exposed and displayed this now defunct, defeated foe. And he leads a gallant, triumphal parade in celebration of the enemy's defeat and of his own victory. That is why only this uniquely impossible faith with the resurrection that blasts apart the finality of death is able to provide a new birth and open the way to a new life. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. We need to be in that bold victory place where we resist the devil and he flees because of our bold prayers and our living out the fruit of the spirit that is love and joy and peace. And those in darkness then could see a great light as we live, as we are called to trust and obey. Some words again from Oz Guinness. Several years ago, Pastor Mark Thompson of Fairbault, Minnesota suffered terrible knife wounds from an assailant who attacked him in his home. One of the many consequences of this difficult recovery was being forced to miss watching his son Chris run in the state cross-country championship. Pastor Thompson commissioned his brother Merv to go in his stead. Mark told his brother, I can't be there to see Chris run, so I want you there at the beginning of the race, holler a lot. And at the end, I want you to really cheer loudly. I want you to make your voice sound like mine. Merv heeded the advice. Chris ran a strong race and finished second. Merv, also a pastor, discerned the theological truth in the story. That's what Jesus wants us to do, he said. Make your voice sound like mine. What is that voice? It's cheering the victory that is there. It's showing the triumph that is ours because of Christ alone and a defeated enemy. It's saying no more standing back as a victim, but rather to be inspired to do something about the things in our world that are not the way that they are meant to be. It's recognizing we pale against the devil from a standpoint of absolute victory. And it's recognizing the time when you and I need to do something is when no one else is willing to do it. And when people are saying it can't be done. 